Good morning, welcome, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We are rejoining you this morning with a special edition of This Week in South Florida. First, a live look from Sky 10 as we talk about newly released records that suggest serious structural concerns at Champlain Tower South three years ago that were just beginning to be addressed. So with anecdotal accounts from before and after the collapse, we begin to find this trail for investigators that will be pinpointing what tripped that catastrophic collapse. And we are going to delve into those records over the next hour. But first, we want to look at the human condition, the tragic toll there at the site. We're going to take you back to the site in Surfside, where the recovery work now is in its fourth day. Local 10's Hatzel Vela joins us there live with an update this morning. Hatzel, good morning. Good morning, Glenna and Michael. You know, you talk about search and rescue, and as Michael just said. So we're cutting a deep trench to assist us. It's now 125 feet in length into the pile. It's 20 feet they wide tossed it sound. I don't know what happened. 40 feet deep. Now this trench is very critical to the continuation of the search and rescue process. Uh, we, we've continued all night to build that, uh, that trench. And as a result of that, we were able to recover four additional bodies in the rubble, as well as additional human remains. As of today, one victim passed away in the hospital and we've recovered eight more victims on site. So I am confirming today that the death toll is at nine. As the search continues, some families now know their loved ones are gone. Investigators have confirmed the names of four, 83-year-old Antonio Lozano and his wife, 79-year-old Gladys Lozano, 54-year-old Stacy Fang, her son, you may remember, miraculously pulled from the rubble alive. And then there's 54-year-old Manuel Lafont, a father of two. I'm praying for all our, all our people. In our community, this affects many of us, especially here in Surfside, where the vice mayor tells us she's still waiting to hear about friends of her own who remain missing. We don't have a resource problem here. We have a luck problem. The issue is, is that we've been fighting the elements. We've been fighting the fire. But we have one objective, and that is to bring those people out of the rubble safely and return them to their families. And that's all we're going to do today. That's all we're going to do tomorrow. It's day number four in the massive search, where rescue teams are still hopeful they'll find survivors in the rubble here. It's a continuous effort, and it is all very well managed. Specialized search crews are still digging, listening for any signs of life. We actively are applying our search and rescue techniques. Uh, we're still aggressively using all our tools that we have. Miami Beach Fire Rescue is using tools like this robot to squeeze into tight crevices that are too dangerous for crews. Volunteer groups also sending in dogs like Oriole, who's trained to find people, whether dead or alive. Following the fires on Saturday, the goal is to make progress today. We'll continue going through this, uh, you know, as hard as we can. I'm very proud of our task force members, very proud of Miami-Dade Fire Rescue and, and all our activities that we've done. And uh, we're going to continue searching and hopefully with a positive outcome. 
And again, the big theme of the day today is progress. Trying to make progress when it comes to search and rescue. We know there's uh, rescue teams on their way from Israel. We know that there's rescue teams already here from Mexico. Let's also talk about the surrounding buildings because we know there's been concerns about folks living in those buildings, specifically the North Tower and possibly evacuating them as well. No final decision on that, but that's an ongoing conversation. And of course, the big question is what happened here? What created this collapse or what caused this collapse? You may remember I talked to the mayor not long ago about this. Uh, he said something must have gone wrong. Someone must have caught it. I know you, Glenna and Michael will be uh, getting into the details of the engineering aspect of this story. Glenna, Michael. You know, Hatzel, at the meeting that the first responders had with the families, there, there is a site visit planned for them it was uh first it was supposed to be this morning now last i heard might have been this afternoon mm -hmm. families many of them and maybe some not want to want to be out there to pray to see have you heard yeah. anything about that yet Yes, we know that that's going to happen at some point. We know that there will be buses coming to a nearby hotel where they can go inside and then have a, a perspective of the building and be able to take some time, as you mentioned, to really just come together as a family and for the first time get closer to this uh, to the collapsed building and really maybe say a prayer, hug each other. Obviously, a very important time for these uh, families as they word as they wait for the news. Yeah, well, we hope that moment gives them some consolation. They have been through hell, yes. no question about it. Hetzelvella, thank you very much Hetzel. from Surfside. Well, building records from the city of Surfside about the Champlain Tower South include detailed documentation of problems at that building. The building was starting its mandated 40-year recertification, and in preparation for that, engineers' inspections and findings identify issues that apparently remained open for the last three years. Rick Slider is a structural engineer and forensic consultant on cases of building construction and efficiencies, and he reviewed those records for us and joins us live here today. Rick, great to have you. Rick, we're glad to see you and glad to have, your, glad to have your expertise. All right, you've reviewed the documents. You obviously have seen the video. This is your area of expertise. What kind of preliminary conclusions have you reached? Obviously, in the video, it's uh, very dramatic. Um, and obviously, it looks like a support condition at one of the lower columns towards the middle of the building. Could be the piling, the support system under the ground, but uh, also could be the uh, lower level columns, at least what it appears to be. And obviously, uh, there are investigators that are going to be conducting their reviews and will be able to determine what the assessment is. Uh, as far as the test, uh, there is a protocol 40-year recertification and that uh, requires a structural engineer come out and make an inspection of the building they're looking at the structural components it is not required to be destructive meaning to tear pieces apart but it's meant to be a visual assessment but an experienced structural engineer can identify cracks in concrete some are important some aren't and based upon those uh, observations they're able to make an assessment as to what needs to be repaired and as part of the recertification program, the engineer is obligated to come back, develop a set of plans and specifications, have contractors qualified in that type of work, do the repairs, and then implement those and certify that building back to the building department. So, Rick, we, uh, there, in preparation for exactly what you're talking about, there is a body of reports from engineers. Borabito Consultants did it out of uh, Palm Beach County 
from this very building as it prepared to do its recertification and that report which I know you read specifies some concerns uh, some not so serious some potentially serious etc all, all over the building so mechanical facade roof electrical focused on a lot of concrete and and even as we are absolutely still in recovery phase we have been hearing anecdotal evidence people's reports of what they saw and heard that is beginning to build a body of evidence and I, i'm going to say as a layperson i am looking at foundation concrete garage area just based on what i've seen as a layperson so when you see a report that identifies cracks in the concrete in the beams in the garage in the flooring underneath the pool which would be the ceiling of the garage how serious with what you read in that report do you find the reporting of concrete cracks and splits and we're going to get a little more detailed on that but just uh, as a as an initial question is that a focus to you it, it is uh, there they mention a lot of components on the balconies and the slabs up above those aren't police for the collapse purposes aren't as critical, but uh, they do have in the report photographs of fairly significant corrosion of the reinforcing steel and what we call a spall. All that really means is concrete is broken. And the level of concrete that is broken in those slabs is an important factor. That in itself could contribute to um, the issues that we're seeing. And the, the project or the report does mention cracks in the concrete columns. Although the photographs in the uh, report don't really show an extensive amount. It does reflect that the lower level columns in the garage uh, are under structural distress and uh, are exhibiting corrosion and uh, breaking or spilling of the concrete. In fact, we have the photographs you are referring to, in fact, and we want to show people, if we can, some of the photographs that the Moravito consultants uh, prepared and found. And what they show, among other things, is something called concrete spalling uh, Rick, explain to us, give us a definition. What, what does spalling mean? Sure. And um, in concrete structures, uh, we also have reinforcing steel. And the reinforcing steel, concrete is fairly durable, um, but the reinforcing steel wants to revert back to the ore, the, the natural material. But it, it rusts if it's exposed to oxygen and moisture uh, and assaults because it's on the beach. And as the steel corrodes, it expands. When it expands, it pushes on the concrete and causes it to break. And we call that breaking of the concrete a spall. So the real issue that we're looking for in the recertification process is how extensive, how pervasive is the amount of corrosion of the steel and how much of the concrete is broken. So it's, all spall means is really broken concrete. So in, on page 7 of this engineer's report, and this is dated October 2018 from an inspection that was done in the summer. So we're exactly three years from the reportings of this particular engineer on this particular building. And with what you just said, I want to throw up a, a screen of what page seven says. Uh, waterproofing below the pool deck and entrance drive, which is near the garage in this building, as well as all of the planter waterproofing is beyond its useful life and therefore all must be completely removed and replaced. The failing waterproofing is causing major structural damage to the concrete structural slab. October 2018, and now in June of 2021, it continues here below these areas. Failure to replace that in the near future will cause the extent of the concrete deterioration to expand exponentially 
Rick, that was not repaired. What do you make of that? Yeah, two things, and I, I agree with the statement that it, it expands exponentially. That concrete starts, concrete deterioration starts out fairly slow, but as time goes forward, it accelerates quite dramatically. So, what may have occurred within the first ten years could happen within double that amount in the next two years. It, it accelerates dramatically, so that is a factor. Usually, if there are areas of structural distress, and the report and just reading it does suggest that there are areas of structural distress that need it. And I think they, even in the report it mentions immediate need. Uh, and that's typically done within a short period of time after that report is filed. Um, most municipalities would also require that that work be done typically within a year's time. Um, I can't say that I've ever had a project or known of a project that would have waited uh, after reporting on those kind of conditions and waited three years to implement the repairs. So let me just continue. Indulge me for one moment. Here is what people have told me at the scene. Uh, a valet parking attendant said right before the collapse there was a rush of water, water rushing in. A resident 10 minutes before the collapse who was coming home couldn't get into the garage because it was filling with water and had to back out and leave. These are anecdotal evidence from, from right around the area and people there, what they saw and heard. Residents now report in hindsight rumblings right before. Do any of those anecdotal observations comport with what might be water seeping in and eventually rushing in to cracks that had exponentially gotten worse in the garage? It certainly could. Um, I do also know that there was a, a pool at, uh, I guess it's the southeast area of the building. Uh, it sounded with that much water that's coming in that uh, obviously there's a water source. Could be that the structure was beginning to fail and the cracks in the pool and the pool deck allowed that water to evacuate. Um, there, there could certainly be other factors. I, again, I've not been on the site, um, but those are indications. Once the structure starts moving and allowing water and other elements to come through, it's just telling you that the cracks and the amount of movement in the structure, which it's not supposed to do, uh, is advancing to a point where the failure ultimately happened. We are speaking with Rick Slider, a veteran structural engineer, and we'll be back with more questions for him about the collapse at the Champlain Tower South. Just a minute. Welcome back on this week in South Florida. We are looking at the collapse of the Champlain Tower South, speaking with Rick Slider, veteran structural engineer. Uh, Rick, we know from the Morabito Consulting Report that it warned of major errors in construction design of this building and the homeowners association took that report and they seem to have acted very slowly do you think in some ways i'm not asking you to prejudge but uh, were they remiss in in not acting faster i i would say based upon the report there probably should have been a quicker response of course the engineer who conducted the in investigation and issued the report uh, also has a duty to advise their client, in this case, the association, that uh, repairs had to be done. And if there was a safety concern or it reached the level of, of structural distress, uh, that the work should go forward. Yeah. Well, let me follow up and say every city, as you well know, has a building inspector. Did that inspector get a copy of this uh, report on the building? And if so, should he have said, gee, they need to act quickly? Uh, as best I know, the records that I have were provided from the building department. Typically, the building departments do rely upon, especially with structural issues, 
on the representations and uh, engineers have to, what we call sign and seal the document to attest to the validity and the basis for the, the reports. So they would have a right to, and most cases do rely upon a structural engineer. I'm not sure about the timing as to why, if the report was filed in 2018, that actual repairs weren't uh, questioned or implemented prior to that time. Um, but I, I simply don't know what the building department's response was. And as a matter of fact, the roof repair was part of that, the roof repair that was ongoing that we know now in the last month. The permit for that roof repair was pulled May 17th of this year. Um, and, and because what we were just talking about, this concrete spalling, which goes to the foundation of the building, was one of the problems. The roof, according to the report, had some, some issues, but was generally deemed to be good. Why would the building do the roof work hmm. and other work and not make priority the foundation work before this 40-year research? Yeah, I would, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the reasoning for that. Obviously, if the roof is leaking, uh, that could be an issue and why maybe that was placed before other elements, but the structural concerns should have been done uh, earlier. And especially the, uh, there was one photograph that I recall in the report of the slabs and the amount of uh, concrete spalling that was evident and the exposed reinforcing steel, um, I would certainly have placed or expected those to be placed at the top of the list of the repairs. Uh, not that the roof's not important, but the, obviously the structural issues are important too. All right, so for that point, I wanna, on page eight and nine, it seems like the engineer was raising that flag. And I wanna read something that he wrote about the underside of the pool deck which appears from the photos to be close to the garage at where the water was. And he reports previously installed epoxy injection repairs were ineffective in properly repairing existing cracked and spalled concrete slabs. MC recommends, that's the engineer, MC recommends that the entrance pool deck concrete slabs that are showing distress be removed and replaced in their entirety. Unfortunately, he reports, all of these failed slabbed areas are under brick pavers, decorative stamped concrete and planters, which require completed roofing replacement. So he's raising a flag that they weren't put in properly. And then to make it right, there was gonna have to be a lot of cosmetic uplifting to get in to do the foundation mm -hmm. work. Sounds like a huge expense. Also sounds like a life safety issue. What do you say? I think there's a couple of items that are tagged together. One, uh, the reporting and the photograph of the, the top of the slab where the steel is exposed. That's telling you there's structural distress. The other issue is he does report in the report um, the lack of the waterproof and keeping the water out. Uh, that could be a factor. And the fact that they also identified in conjunction with that that the prior repairs were ineffective and basically didn't work. Uh, and what uh, it appears they did is they tried to inject the material into the cracks from the underside without repairing the top. And that's really ineffective at keeping the water out and it doesn't solve the problem. So all it did is sort of cover over the condition, at least from what I've read in there, all it really did is cover the condition, uh, didn't eliminate it. And again, it allowed it to manifest and, and get worse. Yeah. Uh, Rick, let me ask you a larger question about this recertification process. I happen to live in a condominium shortly a time ago. It went through a 40-year recertification, but my building, you know, is not directly on the ocean. Do you think that, in fact, the recertification for oceanfront properties like Champlain Tower South 
should occur every 30 years or, you know, not wait 40 years to do it? Uh, that's certainly uh, an item that can be entertained. I would say in my experience and when we are doing these certifications and others that I've seen, usually the observations that are made by the engineer and a qualified engineer is going to be able to assess the level of the cracks. So for the most part, I think the system has worked. What I don't know here, and obviously the uh, engineers on site are going to be able to assess, it could be potentially that there are issues with the foundation or the piling system underneath. And again, that's not visible at the time of the uh, recertification inspections that are done. So basically the, the inspections are done on visual observations of those areas that they can see and in areas like the garage, things like that. The only thing they cannot see uh, typically would be things undergrade, which was going to be the pile foundations. So let me ask a question about the law versus reality, about these 40-year re recertifications. You just mentioned it's a visual, but a visual inspection by a qualified engineer certainly can be very telling. But what in practice, in all of these buildings, what happens when an engineer is contracted to go give the visual make a report like we have in front of us. What happens realistically when this is handed over to an HOA, Homeowners Association? There's costs involved in this case, a million or more dollars of, of payments through assessments. Uh, there might be building owners who are politically connected. And I just, I am not suggesting any of this happened here, but we do live in South Florida where these mm. things do documented happen. What happens when this 40-year recertification raises some issues, major or minor, where does that go? Uh, that is an interesting question. I've actually had projects and it's not uncommon. Uh, in occasions, the associations may not uh, have reserves or they waived reserves for structural type issues. A lot of these repairs, especially if they get to be a structural standpoint and like we're talking about with the pavers, the waterproofing, those systems get to be terribly expensive. And um, I've had a number of projects where associations have said, I just don't want to pay it um, and or deferred at some point. Obviously, there's a fine line. The engineer of record obviously needs to say some of these are structural issues you need to repair. Now you have to do this. And there is an obligation yeah. for his license to identify that to the building permit if that condition exists. Yeah. But uh, I have seen it before where some associations either don't have the funding or don't feel that they have the ability to pay the expense uh, due to assessments or obtaining loans, things like that. Yeah. Rick Slater, uh, very briefly, there is a forensic structural investigation. So much work needs to be in. And how long do you think it's going to take before there are definitive answers about what caused this collapse? Uh, my guess is there are probably experts already on the site that may have a general sense of where the at least the center point of the condition is the actual mechanism to it. And some of this, especially my guess is, is on the lower level columns are obviously under the building at this point and potentially if it's a foundation or piling issue. So it may take time for them after they've done their recovery uh, effort to be able to access those areas. And I heard on the press conference that they were, uh, they had a warehouse where they're gonna take the material. So a yeah. forensic engineer is gonna be able to take those elements of the structure, assess them, figure out where they were, uh, they can tell a lot by how things bend or, or the condition of them, things like that. So uh, my guess is they probably have a sense of where the, the failure occurred or at least started. Uh, but to diagnose it and to make their final assessments may take several months, maybe uh, even longer.
Yeah, several months, maybe even a year. But however it long it takes, it must be done, absolutely. Rick Slider, so great to have your expertise and your analysis. That was invaluable. And it thanks was. so much for your time. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. it. And next, what did the Champlain Towers residents know and when did they know it? The role of the Homeowners Association is critical in building maintenance and you're going to hear how important firsthand next. The collapse of the Champlain Towers South raises a host of legal issues, questions about liability, financial responsibility, and compensation for loss. Homeowners associations are an important part of that equation. We've talked about that. David Haber is one of the leading attorneys in South Florida dealing with construction law, and that involves representing the homeowners associations that make the decisions for those buildings. And he is here with us live. Good morning, David. David? Good afternoon, Good sorry. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Great Glenna and Michael. It's it's nice to see you both, uh, unfortunately, in these in this tragic circumstance. So just want to lay that you are not part of this firsthand, this building, any of the Champlain Towers. You are not representing those homeowners associations, which gives us here a level of objectivity we might not ordinarily have. Right. That's uh, correct. David, if I can, let me begin with some asking you some uh, legal questions. I mean, the 136 units uh, in that building, I'm sure that each homeowner had some kind of insurance. The HOA has insurance. Who was going to pay the people who lost their homes and their lives in this case? Will the insurance companies try to somehow squirrel out of this? Well... Michael, you ask a very interesting question. Um, each person has homeowner insurance for what we call the walls in, the paint, their flooring, but the structure itself is covered by the uh, condominium association insurance, which typically has a value um, of the value of the building itself. And, and what it might cost to rebuild that building. Mm -hmm. um, and whether insurance carrier will, or carriers will try to squirrel out, um, tongue in cheek, the answer is, I've never seen an insurance carrier that doesn't try to find an exclusion or an exception to coverage. However, um, if and when the lawsuits come, because there may be a tender of the policy limits, the problem here is that there's such a large and tragic loss of people yeah. that even if some are recovered alive, there, there presumably will be many that are not so lucky um, that the insurance coverage, including the umbrella coverage, would not necessarily provide any solace to family members. Oh, and as you're speaking, we're actually looking at video of the recovery work going on right now. David, we talked for the last 10 minutes or so with the man you know well, Rick Slider, structural engineer, and he said something toward the end of our segment that homeowners associations don't want his, we were talking about the really expensive projects of remediation and restoration and repair that were identified in this 2018 report. He said, quote, homeowners association, they don't want to pay for it. 
and he was talking generally, of course, not about this, clearly. Um, as a homeowner association, the board representing residents, when you see the kinds of, uh, the kinds of warnings, really, that are in this report, how could you not want to find a way to pay for that? What is that like? Take us through that kind of um, mindset and process. Sure. The process is an interesting one, but it's also a political one. And we need to understand that board members are elected and they're elected by owners. And many of these older buildings up and down our coast and I know that Channel 10 goes up and down the coast. So if you were to go from, let's just say, Coral Gables all the way up to uh, Palm Beach, you will find older concrete buildings, many of which have people with fixed incomes. The idea that in the 39th or 40th year, they're going to get hit with a $25,000, $50,000 assessment is um, quite a wake-up call, if you will to people who may not have the means necessary. Um, one of the things that, and, and one of the things that people, and I do know uh, friends of mine who have relatives that were in that building that are still unaccounted for. One of the things they asked me is, David, what can you do to help change the legislation? And I think it starts with the fact that we have reserve accounts, but it's just too easy to waive those reserves especially for structural components. Or you have the right to pool reserves and spend the money on your lobby renovation because what the lobby looks like is gonna get you a higher fair market value rather than what the garage pillars look like and structural support columns. Um, sooner or later, you have to pay the piper. And if you waive reserves or have insufficient reserves, somebody's gonna hand you a bill in year 40 that it's very difficult for a board to say, hey, we need to come up with $8 million. Now you can get a loan, but the payments are still significant. I just wanna so reframe, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, I wanna reframe sort of in layman's English what I think I'm hearing you say is that homeowners associations wait 40 years before putting money into anything structural because they have to? I would say that some associations either defer reserves, partially fund reserves, or waive reserves. And they can do that year after year after year. Now, the law is that you need a majority of a quorum and everybody's condominium documents are different, but we've seen condominiums that have as low as 33 and a third percent uh, for a quorum or even lower. So let me just give you a layman's term on that. If you have 100 unit owners, you need 34 to show up to a special meeting and you need 18 to vote in favor of waiving reserves. Mm -hmm. So you can do that year after year after year. And if in years, let's just say 30 to 40, you're waiving reserves and the bill comes in at four or five million dollars, that's a lot of money. That's $50,000 per unit. Right. Well, we do know, David, that the Homeowners Association Champlain Towers apparently had reached a, an agreement not to waive reserves, but in fact to assess a building owners. They had some kind of a payment amount set up. We don't know how much it was over a 180 month period. I mean, it must have been a large, a large assessment uh, on that building or else why 
put it over a 15-year period. Well, as you heard from Mr. Slider, there was significant damage with the pool deck and the slab, and they needed to rip up the pavers. This is very expensive. I also want to point out, I've had associations that they don't want the pool deck closed during the summertime. There's a lot of politics in condominium associations. You just need to understand these are elected people. I've had associations where if they wanted to pass a big special assessment, they were voted out of office. Yep. Um, the other thing I want to point out is, I think that the 40-year certification process needs to change. For example, it takes time to hire the engineer, have the report done, have the report issued. Then the engineer has to come up with plans and specifications. Yeah, if I can interrupt then, you, Rick, let, sure. let me ask you the, the, the question, in fact, that we asked Rick Slider is, for oceanfront buildings, which are open to the corrosion of salt, air, and water, should the recertification period be 25 years or 30 years, not 40 years? Well, I think you can take it down to 30 years. Um, I don't know about 20 years, but I know this. Between the time of the engineer getting into the building and the time the plans are done and submitted and a contractor is vetted because you need three bids uh, for contractors for a condominium, it can take a year or two. And then the remediation efforts can take anywhere from one to three years because you saw how extensive uh, the, the remediation needs to be with respect to the pool deck and the columns. So you may be talking about a four-year process plus minus. So if you're starting in year 39, your 40-year certification may not be finalized until year 43 or 44. And, we see and I from think these, that's problematic. Yeah, we see from these documents that the permits, at least for the roof that the work was going on, was pulled last month. So, David, um, we, we want to talk about what we've heard elected officials call for legislative change. So sit tight. We're going to take a couple of minutes of a break, and we'll talk about that when we come back. We are back on this special edition of This Week in South Florida, speaking with attorney David Haber, who does a lot of work in construction and building, and especially with homeowners associations. Uh, David, in the last segment, we started talking about these 40-year recertifications, all the work that goes into them. And it, uh, we started by talking about, is that an appropriate length of time for high-rise buildings facing corrosive environments like salt and water, et cetera? Here's my question to you. The legislative changes that we're hearing elected officials now want to make in light of the collapse and what it will reveal. They are saying there are now at least three cities that we know of will, on the coast will be doing inventory is the word they're using of all their older buildings. And my question is why, why would an inventory not be redundant if a 40 year research was being done properly and what should be done because of what we know of materials and costs that the legislative process can change? Well, I think, Glenna, that you have to understand that building officials in, in most cases are not structural engineers. And they do rely, as Mr. Slider said, on um, outside consultants and structural engineers that certify these buildings. But I think he raised a, an excellent point about why did it take so long. I think maybe some of the legislation has to be that you must initiate 
the commencement of the remediation efforts within X period of time of receiving the report, which takes it out of the hands of board members and the politics of can we pass this assessment? Should we pass this assessment? It becomes, if you will, state mandated that it has to be done. I think it's a good idea at this point to have buildings checked. But remember that boards have fiduciary duties to do maintenance and do upkeep. Um, who knows in this particular instance, because nobody really should speculate, but uh, obviously the engineer who did the report in 2018 said that the prior attempts to repair were ineffective. So the question becomes, were they just trying to put a Band-Aid on? Did, you know, was that because they didn't want to spend the money? It's unknown at this point, and, and, and it's hard to say. Uh, David Haber, let me go back without being redundant, but let me go back and dig a little bit deeper, ask you to dig deeper into this insurance issue, because I just simply have terrible misgivings that the people who lost their homes and who cannot go back to the remaining part of the Champlain Tower, uh, that the insurance companies are going to fight them. I know that uh, at least the insurance companies require that buildings be held, be kept in, quote, reasonably safe condition. Uh, do you think, in fact, the insurance companies, again, are going to say, well, we have demonstrable evidence this building was not kept in reasonably safe condition? Um, I believe that ultimately there will be claims against former board members for not moving quickly enough, maybe against, and, and I don't want to speculate, but unfortunately, Mr. Morbido for, you know, not waving a, a larger red flag after the, the building wasn't starting the repairs early enough. There will be claims against the prior remediation company that apparently did ineffective repairs and there will, there will be officers and directors claims. Um, the casualty insurance, you know, there's gonna be different groups of people seeking money. You're gonna have the people who unfortunately, tragically have, have lost family members. You're going to have people who have lost their homes. Uh, you're gonna have people who may have been injured in, in the collapse. So you have different competing groups of people coming after a fixed pot of money, if you will. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you an attorney question. Uh, take us into the mind of uh, some attorneys who are operating right now by filing lawsuits. Um, frankly, their public relations companies are sending us press releases on the lawsuits that these attorneys are filing as class action on behalf of the Champlain Towers residents. And, and all the while, we're reporting from the people who are working there on the scene that they're in full-on recovery, focused on the human toll at the moment, mm -hmm. not even thinking about fixing a start, talking publicly about what might have happened there. Why are attorneys filing lawsuits and with what evidence? Well, let's just say there's a reason sometimes that uh, personal injury lawyers have a lower uh, trust rating than uh, used well, car I, salesmen. I didn't, I didn't mean that to, <laughs> to be a slam on any profession at all, just for the record. I just, I wondered, really wondering, like what is the basis for a lawsuit to be filed now? Well, I, I've heard of one uh, lawsuit filed in order to protect the documents. I, I'm sure given 
the level of federal, state, county, and city um, investigation and oversight of this tragedy right now. No one is 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 destroying documents, and I, I just don't understand. With a, I think the focus needs to be on the recovery efforts, letting the engineers figure out what's going on uh, with the building, why it happened, which will take time, and the grieving families, and not on filing lawsuits. There's no statute of limitations that's going to run between now and next year where lawyers have to jump in and file a lawsuit. I think it's inappropriate. I think it's uh, sad, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm disappointed in my colleagues. David Haber, we appreciate your candor and your expertise, construction law expert David Haber. Thank you so much for joining us. And, thank you uh, for having me. Thanks, David, and stay tuned. We will be right back. We want to thank you for being with us on this special edition of This Week in South Florida. And remember, we are covering this story 24-7 on air and online at local10.com. The largest single loss of life in South Florida history. We are on it. Remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Our local team, uh, Local 10 team coverage on the Surfside kind of collapse will continue after this break. And we want to leave you, though, with some of the most powerful images from the past few days.